to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, on this episode, I get to talk to the wonderful Tara Fay. I think Tara's Instagram profile describes her best as an independent curator, performance artist, and streetwear enthusiast. Tara is also on the board of directors at Bunker Projects, an art and residency space in Pittsburgh. I first met Tara through Jose Diaz, who had arranged a dinner party for a group of artists and curators, and Tara and I immediately hit it off. Throughout my time in Pittsburgh, Tara has always been so supportive of my work, and I was really happy to be able to talk to her about her perspectives on the art scene in Pittsburgh. Around the time of the interview, Tara was hosting and moderating a public discussion with Dan Lear, the curator of photography at the Carnegie Museum of Art. More specifically, Tara wanted to discuss the incident and controversy surrounding Dina Lawson's show at the Carnegie Museum of Art. Dina Lawson is a photographer, and this particular show was first shown in New York City, and it was received with great fanfare and great critical acclaim. But when it was brought over to Pittsburgh, the show seemed to alienate a huge number of the Pittsburgh community and audience. The incident started out with a black woman filming the show with her phone and posting it online and sort of expressing doubts about the show. This eventually spilled over into Facebook, and the entire incident sort of brought up a lot of different difficult questions about who the audience is of the Carnegie Museum of Art, what kind of safe space that place is, and how a lot of these different issues were then brought to the surface through Dina's show. I'll post a Vice article about the incident with more details in the show notes below. I've alluded to this particular incident many other times in in a few of my other interviews, but this is the first time that I go really in-depth with it. And since Tara had held a discussion about it, I thought it was great to talk about it with her. We also discuss a few other things at length, uh, such as the Adrian Piper show, which also happened last summer. Tara was really busy, and she was able to finally see the show right before it closed, so we were able to talk about that. And we also talk about performing for white audiences, different types of privilege, and Beyonce. The audio sort of got slightly messed up at the end, so I apologize for that. Also, as a random side note, if it wasn't already apparent, many of these interviews were conducted months in advance. I've been living in Berlin since September through a Fulbright, and this is also the around the same time that I launched a podcast. So most of the Pittsburgh interviews happened last summer. And in the beginning of this particular interview, I talked a lot about my future plans in Berlin and beyond. And it was sort of interesting to contrast that with what has and what has not panned out, with most of the things not panning out. I left that part in, so if you're bored, just skip ahead around 10 minutes or so. Uh, I'm still figuring out my future and waiting to hear back from a few things, so... I'm also trying not to read word for word my introductions. A few people have said that it sounds very robotic. And so, yeah, 
Um, in any case, I hope you enjoy this. All right. You want to say some stuff? What should I say? Uh, why don't you start with how your day was? Um, it's been uneventful. Uneventful? Well, Neon's goddad is in town, so we were expecting him early this morning. And I was supposed to get up to clean because my house has been a mess because I've been traveling and working so much. And I didn't get up. So I was like scrambling to clean and waiting for Sean to come back from showing a house so that I could leave. So I'm behind on everything I had to do, but it could be worse because I have the rest of the day to get things done. Mm-hmm. How's your day been? It's been good. Uh, mostly, been mostly doing, I guess, house cleaning stuff. So I started a batch of cold brew coffee mm-hmm. for tomorrow and this coming week. I did laundry. I was just scrolling through your Instagram feed to just mentally prepare myself. You know, I think part of my process I've realized is like just look at the person I'm interviewing as much as I can until it seems like that's all I'm seeing for the moment before, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, actually. Um, Yeah, so that's my day. And then got back and just set up and tried to clean up a little. It's really empty here, but I imagine you prefer it that way since you move around so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm also, like, I'm also, um, I'll be going to Berlin in a month, so, like, I'd rather, I'm, yeah, I'm just so itinerant that it's sort of difficult. Is it hard to not collect things? Like, do you ever see things you want and you're like, there's no point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I mean, I think I collected things when I lived here while in grad school because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll be here for three, at least three years. And then I've, you know, I, I collected art. I framed them. I, uh, you know, I bought nice kitchen equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they're all just stored away. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking forward. I don't know when this will happen, but I'm looking forward to the time where I'll actually have my own place mm-hmm. that I can call sort of home. Are you excited for Berlin? I am. Yeah, it's sort of a excited, scary, you know, all the all the emotions kind of bundled up. Mm-hmm. Will you be working with anyone or it's just a solo residency? Um, so I will be partnered with three different institutions. Um, I'll be partnered with a residency uh, called Glauco Air. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it's a live workspace. I'll be partnered with UDK, which is University der Kunst. Um, they're sort of like the one of the big art schools in Germany, and they're based in Berlin. And then I'll be partnered with Fluxus Plus, which is a museum specializing in the Fluxus art movement. That's sort of what the Fulbright project is about. Okay, I remember you to mentioned the Fluxus group. Wow. Yeah. That's very exciting. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I've sure been, you'll meet amazing people. I'm just put this um, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the plan is to try to um, go there for a year. My five-year plan. Did I tell you my five-year plan? I, I don't think so. That. My five-year plan is sort of to go there, and while I'm there, I've all I've this backlog of all this um, video footage that I've done mm-hmm. from the residency. So I, I've only made two pieces this past year, but I have about three or four video projects that I just haven't gone around to finishing yet. And so I want to make those projects. Hopefully, make my portfolio stronger, and then reapply to. Maybe a teaching gig or two. I did. Yeah, you did mention that you wanted um, to teach. You know, uh, maybe apply to some longer term residencies. So I'm a little 
burnt out, I think, from doing these one to three month residencies, lining them up can be a little difficult. I think I was really lucky. I was really lucky that I lined so many up. Like when I look back, it sort of blows my mind that it worked out. Yeah. You know, because I, I sat in on a uh, residency panel and one of them, it was like 190 painters were fighting for four spots. Wow. You know, and the new media, at least the year that I sat in on, it was like 60 or 70 for four spots, which was more manageable. But still, it's like... It's a lot. It's still like kind of, the odds are so crazy that... Mm -hmm. um, to imagine myself lining all these different things up, um, I think was lucky. And I think I had like, I was really, I had some luxury in having just like a week or two in between mm -hmm. this past year. So like thinking of applying to maybe Provincetown Fine Arts Work as like a seventh month residency with a stipend in Provident, Provincetown, uh, Roswell, New Mexico. That's also, that's a year long one mm -hmm. that also has a stipend. So yeah, trying to figure that out. Where would your ideal place to teach be? Uh, well, so I think because for me, I think owning property would, is really important for an artist. Mm -hmm. So if I could, I would be placed in, a, well, based on my credentials, I probably would be placed somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, Tennessee. Why is that? Because uh, the main cities are way too competitive. Mm. Like I could go there. But I think I just imagine in my head, I just imagine it'd be easier, more likely for me to be placed somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And if I can, I would settle down and teach there for like a few years and try to get some property. Um, I was just in Indianapolis mm -hmm. and I know that city is trying to re revitalize itself. And um, I mean, it's a, another form of gentrification, but I know they're selling like run down homes for three thousand five hundred dollars with with a chance for a low interest loan for thirty five thousand to help rebuild that house that you just bought. So like things like that, like that wouldn't exist in a city. Yeah, that's true. You know, a few cities um, they instituted similar programs. I know they did it in Detroit. Yeah, and they did it in Buffalo. And the one in Buffalo I was really excited about because I was like, oh, I could own a home for a dollar. But it's contingent on you being able to put a certain amount of work into it. And mm -hmm. then you would have to make like a promissory agreement to live there for like a year to three years. Right. So but it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. But you got to, you gotta, I mean, you got to start somewhere. Or I guess if you have like half a million to a million dollars to put down for yeah. <laughs> like a house. Like I think what you probably could do that here for like 200000 right? Depending where you want to live yeah. or how far away you want to live. It's hard to think that it's like too expensive to own a home in Pittsburgh now. I know, I know. So, yes, like by the time and money, I would have really liked to have bought a place when I first got here. Yeah. Twenty twenty, right? Yeah, I mean, there's still availability. I think depending on where you're looking. Yeah. Because um, I don't think some people have realized the value of the areas that they live in. I know Millville is really focused on the revitalizing as opposed to the gentrification. Mm -hmm. So they have newer businesses coming in. But I think it's still relatively inexpensive to rent there right. because I almost moved there. But it was a school district that I just like wasn't interested in because there's no diversity. And I'm like, do I want to sacrifice that for not having to deal with, you know, Pittsburgh public? Right. But it's just it made more sense to live in the city. Is the school in Bloomfield set a good school? 
It's it's an okay school. They they're big on the STEAM program, which I think is really important. And then um, they have the kids learning coding and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's stuff that I don't even know if Shaler offers that because when I was there, I started in the high school, mm-hmm. and I mean the high school was great, really great faculty, really great like resources, a beautiful library, all new computers, everything you'd expect from like a suburban school with money. But it's just, it wouldn't be worth it to like put my kids through that. Right. It wasn't really worth it for me because I graduated and I didn't do much else. So. Right. All right. Yeah. All right. So I guess if you want to start, um, I'm here with Tara Faye Coleman or is it Tara Faye or Tara Faye Coleman? What do I you, like Tara Faye. You like Tara Faye? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and I met, I don't know where I first met you. I think first met you with at a dinner with Jose. Yeah. Officially, I think I've, I've seen you around a lot. Mm-hmm. I think Jose Diaz, the curator of the Warhol, invited me with um, you and um, Sean or Casey. And was Casey okay? Casey and Raphael. Yep. Casey, Raphael, you and Sean, and that was the first time I met you. And in, in the time that's happened in between, um, I follow you a lot on Instagram. I think that's the main means that I can I seem to know the most about you. Um, and then I keep running into you, um, at all these different art events. Yeah. Um, and so do you want to start off just talking about what you do, how you navigate Pittsburgh? Um, well, I got into curatorial work accidentally, I would say. I was in school for fashion and retail management at the Art Institute and I always liked art, but... I don't have any artistic abilities. I can't paint. I can't draw. So I figured it was just something I could always just like from a distance. And I frequented museums and galleries as much as I could. I I don't think I ever had the... I never wanted to learn either. I don't know. I just... I thought there was a different avenue, but I just had not found that avenue. Mm -hmm. So um, in the time I was in school, I was um, helping out a friend of mine with marketing and promotion for this new boutique she was working at. So um, I went to a meeting with the store owner with her and he was like screaming at everybody. He was like, I would fire all of you if I could. And I was like, I don't ever want to work for this guy. Mm -hmm. And then um, she was working at the East Liberty location and she was like, you know, I need a person on staff. Do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And subsequently wound up working for the guy I swore I would never work for. But he's amazing. He's um, he's done a lot in terms of um, pushing the culture forward, I think, in streetwear. I love working for his company and being a part of that environment. And he really does um, cultivate creativity and he likes having a staff that, you know, is involved in the arts and does things outside of our job because he knows ultimately that we'll continue to push the culture forward internally. So he's always been supportive of my artistic endeavors, um, starting with the gallery crawl events we used to do. We would host artistic integrity events monthly, and it did really well for a while, but then the person who hired me wound up leaving the company And I became a store manager and it was just too much to be managing the store and in school and doing these events. So I think we put it on hold for a while and then... um, This is social status? Yeah. Um, And I was working out of the downtown location. I transferred from East Liberty to downtown. Mm -hmm. 
So I think somewhere along the way, I um, had the idea to just do events that would align with the gallery crawl anyway, since we wanted a relationship with the cultural trust. So we started doing that and it was going really, really well. And um, I was able to pull in artists and choose their work based on what fit the aesthetic of the store and plan an event around it and help contextualize the work with how it fits in the store and create artist statements. And I didn't even realize it, but I was curating. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a few years and um, my partner, Sean Buford, he had been curating as well out of Studio AM. We were both doing it at the same time and it was kind of cool because we were bouncing ideas off of each other and working separately but also collaboratively. So I think as our relationship has grown, it's like sort of strengthened our curatorial endeavors because we kind of work off of each other and we research like parallel to each other because neither of us have any formal curatorial background or any like formal experience. Mm -hmm. So we have to read and research, I think, a lot more than most people. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it helps. And um, I was able to start doing things outside of the store. And my first show was at Most Wanted Fine Art Gallery. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So um, I had the idea to do a show based around graffiti culture. And I think a lot of times the mistake I make as a curator is sort of underestimating my connections to, well, overestimating, I would say, my connections to like certain avenues. And graffiti culture is very much an underground culture. So it's not that easy to say, hey, I want graffiti artists to commission work for this show. It was almost impossible. Because, yeah, because they all have the tags and yes. they get found out. They could be charged and exactly. given a fine and put in jail. Yeah, and around the time, the graffiti task force, which is still a thing, um, was really prevalent and arresting a lot of people. And it really affects their livelihood and it puts them in a position to where they can't survive. And they have fines that align with fines of, you know, career criminals. And it's yeah. like, it's really hard to get back from that. Yeah. But I managed to pull things together. I knew a few artists personally who were able to like source work from other people. And it wasn't ideal and it didn't pan out exactly how I wanted it to. But I learned very early that that's oftentimes not the case. And even if you have a really strong concept and you have the perfect blueprint and you know where everything's coming from and how it's going to fit together, there's always one factor that will not align with your plans. Yeah. And you just have to learn to be okay with that regardless, which has been the case with, I think, every single show that I've produced. <laughs> um, it's always an exercise in like chaos and organization, right? Yeah. Because you're dealing with so many different personalities and deadlines. Yeah. Like I remember talking to a curator. He was he's curating the Carnegie International, the, the previous one. Mm -hmm. And like he was saying one of the artists up until the week before the show was opened still didn't have the piece there. You know? Oh, wow. And sort of like, I don't, I don't even know. I assume they're contracts. I'm not sure. But like whatever it was, like apparently if this artist could do that, it felt like that almost seems like a status quo sort of thing where like, you know, and then there's the shipping of items yeah. and stalling and just, it's kind of crazy all the moving parts. You even imagine that it could fit together. Yeah. And then artists are artists and they're also people and they have lives and other things going on. 
which is terrifying because in my position, I'm always, you know, advocating for artists and sometimes artists is not, are not as cooperative as you need them to be. But then it puts me in a position to self-reflect. And I think about all the emails that I didn't respond to promptly or all the things that I didn't get finished, you know, Mm -hmm. within a certain time frame. And I'm very forgiving in that regard. So, you know, no big deal. Yeah. But I've had that happen with a large scale production and it was really terrible. It's the perfect example of everything that could possibly go wrong, going wrong with the show. And um, since that happened, I've promised myself that I'm never going to do anything to where I don't have a long range time frame because if you're not working with experienced artists, especially not that this was the case with this show in particular, but just in general, like they don't always understand the need to get work done at a certain time because I don't think they understand the process of, you know, making work fit together and making sure it fits within the space and everything, you know, flows and is, I guess, cohesive. So it's always a scary thing, but it's also like a fun risk that I don't get tired of because, you know, I'm still doing it. Yeah. How would you describe your, maybe you're not, you're still discovering it, but how would you describe your curatorial process? Um, So initially I was sourcing artists in the way that I would say, you know, I, I like your work. Let's see how it fits within the space. And sometimes it didn't. So I've learned to sort of fine tune my approach. And um, I was actually advised by a few friends of mine that are, you know, professional curators that studio visits are always a must. So I do studio visits a lot more frequently because seeing people's processes really, really helps me sort of see if I could work with them at any point because it just gives you an idea of how people are, how they work within timeframes. And I love seeing the artistic process. Like it's one thing to see the finished products, but I think I just love studio visits because to see someone working within their space and putting things together, it's such an amazing experience Mm -hmm. um, that I love being a part of. So I do that just to get a better idea of who I'm working with. I don't like the idea of like an open call, like, oh, hey, I have a show, submit your artwork, because Um, you wind up disappointing people or you wind up with a bunch of work that does not fit your concept. Uh, it was only like a year ago that you did the open call that I applied for. Yeah, oh. and that 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 was that you felt burned by that. Yeah, in some ways because um, so it was a really new space. It was a space that had not been used previously, and it was a really as raw. Yeah, which I think worked. However, the artists weren't aware of that, mm. so some of the submissions I got just didn't work, or they worked and spatially they didn't fit, which was really disappointing because I did pick some works in particular, and the idea I wanted for the show was it to be like a contrast. So initially, I wanted these really bright, vibrant works that would work in contrast to the space the show was in, mm-hmm. and along the way, I had to sort of change that concept because the work just it wasn't fitting or there were factors that just weren't working and I did like how it turned out, but I don't think I would do another open call. Okay. And I think my preference now is to work with artists collaboratively. Yeah. So before I even have a concept, I know based off of studio visits or artists that I've met with previously who I want to work with. Yeah. And I put the artists together and I say, you know, let's collaboratively think of a concept. Right. You know, you're working with this person and, you know, this is their work. And how do you think that aligns with your work? You know, can we build a concept around it? And I've 
I like that a lot. I think it's been working really well. It makes the artists feel like they're more a part of the show and they're contributing more than just, you know, showing work in a space. Yeah, yeah. And I like that idea because in Pittsburgh, you know, it, we're not a selling market. So when I produce a show, there's not a guarantee that the work is going to sell. There's not a guarantee that the artists are going to make money. And, you know, I'm not in a position to be able to pay stipends or even pay myself. Yeah. So, um, I don't like the idea of sort of putting an arbitrary vision out there and saying like, well, I want you to make work that aligns with this. I think it benefits everybody to work collaboratively and then we're all contributing to a story. Um, And it's not just them putting their time and resources into my vision. Right. So I think that's where I'm at as far as my process right now. And I've been happy with that process. And I think I'll probably continue with that process. I haven't necessarily done it in a show with any men because unintentionally, my shows have been all women. Um, Like post that open call, you mean? Yeah. And I think in general, I've every show I've had outside of... um, things that I've produced at the boutique, it's been with all women and it just, it always happens that way. And I think, you know, I do believe in divine feminine energy Mm -hmm. and I think it works when you're putting a show together because oftentimes they have great ideas that they just didn't know how to conceptualize. So in my role, I'm able to help with that and they're contributing to like a big artistic vision and it just works and I'm happy with that process. I think I'm going to continue with it. What do you, this is sort of going a little back, just quickly, what do you think of studio visits? Like, I think I think from an artist's perspective, it always feels awkward, but I'm curious from the curator's perspective, how do you how do you feel? Maybe it's mutual that it feels awkward. It, it can be awkward. I yeah. think artists are nervous sometimes. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's like, well, you know, I'm a person just like you're a person. Mm-hmm. And um, I think artists underestimate how important they are for a curator. I mean we would not have a job if it wasn't for artists and, you know, what they're contributing. So to me, it's very much a privilege to be able to have connected with the artists I've connected with and work Mm -hmm. with some of the artists I've worked with. So for them to be nervous, I guess it makes sense because it's like you're kind of exposing yourself to someone and you don't know how that work is going to be received. You don't know if it's going to lead to anything. So I understand the awkwardness. And sometimes it's awkward for me too, because I'm perfectly comfortable listening to an artist talk about their process and their interests, you know, for hours, but Mm -hmm. you kind of have to ask questions and, you know, nudge them. And I think some artists by nature, they don't always know how to maybe present themselves because they're essentially presenting themselves through their work. So... And yeah. um, that's that's with emerging artists, especially because I think veteran artists, they're better at contextualizing the work and explaining the work. Whereas yeah. an emerging artist is kind of they haven't learned the language yet. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think I don't know if I'm I think I've done it enough to do visits where I feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. But also I'm still for me, I think it's um, if it's anyone who's new, it still feels awkward only because you only have a limited amount of time to yeah. show show the person you know what you do and what your practice is about i guess i'm i guess i'm more referring or i'm thinking more about like random studio visits mm-hmm. right so yeah. like when someone um especially at these residencies that i've been to sometimes they'll invite an artist to see your work but mm-hmm. or a curator or a critic but they don't know your work but i guess it would be different if you as a curator have researched a specific artist. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's just also like there's this sort of tension where you're not sure 
especially you haven't established a relationship with the person doing it. So you have mm-hmm. sometimes both sides of the party are trying to figure out like, you know, what is the agenda? How much they know about me? How do I then talk about things that isn't overlapping yeah. um, with something they already know? And then sometimes there's a time limit. So you also feel pressure. Yeah. And you're like, all right, well, you have 30 minutes to talk about my life, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and then also need to add time for you as a, as a visitor to be able to input some things as well. Yeah. But that's sort of my mindset whenever I have a suit is I'm just like, this is a sort of weird prearranged marriage almost. Yeah. That's a really good way to frame it. Yeah. It's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious, you just came back from New York and you saw the Adrian Piper show. I was curious what you thought about that show. I think that's my knowledge of her and her work and her career was really limited to her performance stuff because um, I make it a point to try to learn as much as I can about performance artists of color, especially those doing um, very conceptual works. And of course, you know, she was one of the names I saw frequently and I related to her in so many ways, you know, with her being biracial and also, you know, white passing. I think everything she experienced growing up, which was touched on in her exhibition, of course, feeling as though, you know, she didn't fit in with who she related to. And I think probably any mixed race or biracial person has had a similar experience. Um, It's just, I wouldn't say it's a rite of passage, but it's something that we all go through and um, it's contingent on, you know, what neighborhood you grow up in and things like that. But her and I had a very similar upbringing. I think the technical and philosophical aspect of her work, I really wasn't aware of. So it was really exciting to see so much content. And, you know, you referenced the notebooks earlier. And I think I wish I had had more time. I was really, really limited. I went the last weekend and, and um, um, how many hours did you spend there? Three. Um, That's how much I, time I spent too. Yeah, and I could have been there longer because I wanted to read everything. I wanted to read every notebook entry. Yeah, yeah. And it was difficult. So I guess it kind of made me wistful. But yeah. I can pick up the exhibition book. You I'm bought, really you, glad that I got it. I haven't because uh-huh. I always get it on Amazon. Yeah, it's I know. I, I, yeah. I, I, I want to. I always want to support the museum, but I'm like, <laughs> it's like twenty dollars cheaper on Amazon. I know. So and you have to lug it around. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that I did get an opportunity to see it. I think I would have really, really regretted it if I didn't. I do wish there was um, that her video was accessible because she has so much video content, I and know. I'm like, somebody needs to compile this and like sell a dvd yeah um, she has her she has her archives in berlin yeah so i was so, thinking of maybe seeing if i could check it out can i get there i'm really curious to see because so much of her work is you know it's supposed to continue after she's gone yeah and i'm wondering if it's going to go to berlin or if it's going to be something that the moma holds on to does the moma own a lot of her work i don't think so yeah but i think the piece in particular where she's collecting parts of herself, mm-hmm. you know, her plan is for yeah. that to continue yeah. until her passing. And I don't know, just since they exhibited her work, I'm wondering if, you know, they'll have a hand in showcasing the rest of it. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's always a conundrum. Yeah. It'd be great if they did because then it would feel a little bit more accessible, but yeah, you know, we'll see. And I love that video for teaching people how to dance Yeah, in Berkeley. 
it kind of hurt me because I know Morris Day, uh-huh. he was cited and he said, you know, funk is dead. They're teaching classes on funk. And I'm like, I love Morris Day. And I hate that he didn't like what Adrian was trying to do. And I think uh, maybe he didn't understand it. But he said this in the exhibition. I yeah, think, oh. they had a quote up. and Because um, my partner and I, we love Prince and Purple Rain. And that's yeah. why I was introduced to Morris Day. So uh-huh. I showed him and I'm like, oh, this is such a bummer. Like, he's not a fan. But yeah. I mean, I guess I, I can understand it from that perspective. And he he probably didn't have a lot of context in terms of, you know, what she was trying to do. Right. It would seem like a watering down to do yeah. all, or all, even like a disservice to, you know, to do that sort of class. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think we were talking and I just was really struck by that show. I think, you know, just a certain a few points popped out. Like I think she was like given tenure track or she was a tenured professor in philosophy in 1991 mm-hmm. but she was like the only black i think person yeah who got tenured in philosophy in all of the u.s which is like crazy to even think about i love the piece that she did of when she was reading kant and then looking at herself in the mirror yeah that's so i tried posting it on instagram like three times it kept getting flagged because it of really? the nudity yeah but i mean i, I mean i was scrolling through your instagram Okay, yeah, nice. I, I, wound see up, it. I had to censor it, which I'm really bummed that I had to do, but it was really worth. And I'm like, I want people because I know a lot of my following. It's not people within the arts community because, mm-hmm. you know, I work in streetwear. So it's people that are like into shoes and clothes. Yeah, and so I really. Yeah. And I really feel a responsibility sometimes to profile work that I'm interested in and just yeah. important work in general. And I know there's a lot of women, especially that would appreciate, you know, that project. So I just, I was really compelled to post it. I'm glad I was able to, but yeah, such an incredible body of work. And I mean, so inspiring. Um, just as Kant, just, I'll just give a quick context. She was reading Kant and she felt like she was losing her mind reading Kant, which for me also held a very interesting, interesting idea because someone once described reading philosophy as sort of entering a sort of hallucinogenic state because to even understand philosophy there's so many different mental leaps that you have to make to even believe what you're reading actually has any factual or logical yeah. basis. And so you enter a hallucinogenic state to even understand it. And so it was interesting to then see Adrian Piper, who, you know, I think of as extremely smart. She got a doctorate in philosophy in Harvard so that she can speak like basically a white person or, yeah. or, or know the language of the white person to then use it in her own means. But even for her to feel like she was losing herself reading Kant. And then in the process of reading it, she would then take a photo of herself in the mirror just to make sure that she still existed after reading the text that she was reading of Kant. Mm, It was really, really beautiful. I think it's really interesting how um, she dealt with so much in the ways of, you know, being the only person of color in her field, and yet she was white passing. So I think it says a lot in terms of... um, how we're only so accepted, even if we have, you know, traditionally European features. And I've, I've had this happen a few times recently where I've emailed somebody, you know, on the pretense of, you know, I'll give an example, like if I feel a publication has like a glaring lack of diversity, I'm like, I'd like to meet to talk to you about, you know, what could be improved, what you could do differently. You actually write these emails? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, they're always surprised when they meet me, surprised to the point where, They'll come to a place to meet me and they don't know it's me because I think they're expecting someone. Like a really, really dark skin. Yeah. 
So there's always that, you know, factor of surprise. But I know that ultimately, like, I'm black, no matter how European and fair skinned I look. And that's something I grapple with because, you know, I am very privileged to be invited into certain spaces. But I know that I would not be invited into these spaces if I didn't emphasize the importance of people of color being invited. So I wonder how much of it is organic and how much of it is, you know, just because I run my mouth a lot. Yeah. I'm always curious, but it's something I would never get a definitive answer for. For that reason, I wish I could just, you know, talk to Adrian and ask, you know, how she dealt with that and yeah. how she grappled with the idea that, you know, she did not look ethnic at all, but, you know, mm-hmm. she was still in these spaces, but ultimately wasn't really accepted because she wound up like losing her tenure and she dealt with so many microaggressions, I'm right. sure. She was put on like a watch list right yeah and she was told to come back and she's like no i'm not or i can't i'm not sure yeah so it'd be worth being able to have a conversation about and i think have you reached out i have and i don't it seems like it wouldn't be that simple like i'd have to go through so many channels and yeah i don't know i wouldn't want to do all that just to be disappointed but she's one of the few performance artists that i can absolutely relate to not even in terms of you know what we're producing, but just who she is as a person, her upbringing, and yeah. you know her lineage. So, and I think that always struck. The thing that struck me when I was looking at it was I was like, somehow it could be cheesy, mm-hmm. but it isn't, right? Like, yeah. she had all those images of her with a text bubble saying something that was like a microaggression, and like I could totally see that as like a student doing that in my yeah. class, you know. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, like. The way that she constructs it, the way that she contextualizes it, maybe is also the text that's a little more mature. Mm-hmm. That it didn't come off as as juvenile or student yeah. made, um, and the fact that she was able to straddle those two lines, um, I think, makes it also really strong. Right, anyone who's able to straddle like the line of like bad and good, yeah, that's usually a usually a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. It's a really incredible body of work. Yeah, and I think, I guess, moving into the museum space, one of the pieces that I wish I saw was your hair weaving in the Carnegie in the context of the Dina Lawson show. Yeah. And I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about that. Um, so I, I got into performance art. I had actually read Marina Abramovic's memoirs. and um, I have not. Is it good? It's really good. Okay. My partner had the book and um, he was kind of like dabbling. I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Yeah. I think I read it in like two days. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, I didn't know much about her career. I was actually introduced to Marina through Jay-Z. So, I mean, <laughs> not directly introduced, of course, but that's how I became aware of her work. Yeah. Um, I remember at one point her work was parodied on Sex and the City and there was an episode where like they had a very similar performance to where um, she was in the structure in a museum. She couldn't leave, couldn't eat. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I was able to familiarize myself with that actual work through her book. And it 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 kind of gave me the idea of how you convey a really strong message through movement of your body, through. I don't know how to explain it, just in conceptual ways that may not exactly be artistic, but you can say more through your body than you can, you know, putting paint to a canvas or Mm -hmm. pen to paper. And that's something I always struggled with. And I think 
through my curatorial work, I always tried to tell a story, but ultimately it wasn't my story. It was just a story through the work. So it was really inspiring to know that like, hey, I could convey a message through movement or, you know, I could work with a partner and, you know, create energy that is expansive and, you know, other people feel that energy. And then you're changing your field and you're like changing your little part of the universe. Right, right. I decided it was something I definitely wanted to explore more. So I conceptualized a few things and I was just researching and especially like the limitations of my body because I knew I was interested in durational performance, but I was like a very small out of shape person. So what, what do I have the capacity to really produce? And, um, I got the idea to do something for the Pittsburgh performance arts festival, which was I think 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was the weekend I went to New York to see, I think we went for Panorama. So we were there all weekend. We went to the Queens Museum uh-huh. and I was just trying to, and the Brooklyn Museum too. It was really, really or incredible. The Armory Week. Wasn't that Armory? No, we went, um, so we went there for Scope and then um, we went separately for the Queens Museum okay. and then we were in the Brooklyn Museum too. I wasn't there to see anything in particular. I just wanted to be inspired by, yeah, you know, see arts. Yeah, see, kind see of what, art that whatever was around. You don't see it often in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And it was my first time going and it wasn't specifically for an exhibition. Yeah. So within that weekend, I conceptualized the whole performance and I submitted it to um, Performance Arts Festival and I was so nervous. I didn't even like want to tell my partner. <laughs> yeah. he, he was like, just tell me. I'm like, I can't. I like can't talk about it yet. But, I know um, that feeling. Yeah. So it was really difficult. And I didn't know if I was ready. And I think I felt some guilt about like, can I take up space as a performer when this is something so new? I've never done anything in performance too either. So, but yeah, I had this idea to do a piece about labor and the labor of black women in particular and Mm -hmm. how we are at risk in so many different ways. I mean, down to life expectancy, down to, you know, being victims of domestic violence, police brutality, like so many odds are, you know, stacked against us and having been in um, an abusive relationship and still dealing with that trauma, but also having to maintain and work and raise children and, you know, be in this relationship and, you know, still be trying to create, it's difficult. And I wanted to do a piece that was representative of that. Mm -hmm. So I had this idea to scrub the floor of the Melwood screening room. And I had photos of women that had, um, you know, been victims of either police violence or domestic violence, black trans women that had been, you know, murdered. And I had it showing on a reel and it was silent. So it was just images and um, a this quote. This actually happened or this was the proposal? It actually happened. Okay. So this was actual performance. It was exactly what I proposed, uh-huh. which was great. That actually worked out the yeah. way it, it should have. And I had a quote from um, their eyes were watching God and it just, it played on a reel and the screening room was dead quiet. So I'm in there and I'm like scrubbing the floor and I'm on my knees And I proposed a three-hour performance, and I wound up cutting it short by, I think, 45 minutes. And my partner was really upset, but I'm like, I can't be in this space continuing to do this labor with all of these white people coming in and watching me. And that was initially, you know, exactly what I proposed. But actually doing it, it was a lot for me to handle. Like in the proposal itself, you also said that you planned to be... um fetishized by a white audience. Yeah, not so much in those words, but I thought it was really poignant that I'm in, you know, the Melwood screening room, which is essentially a white-owned space, you right, know. Right, 
the performance arts festival is run by a white woman who, you know, she's amazing, but she's also white. And I knew the audience I was going to anticipate. So I was prepared for all of that. But then in the moment I was just like, I can't do this. Like my Mm -hmm. knees were bruised. I was so focused on what I was doing that I was like really scrubbing that floor. It's probably the cleanest it's ever been (laughs) after that performance, but it was a lot. I don't regret cutting it short because I think it happened as it was supposed to. It taught me a lot about what I can handle emotionally and then also like for a durational performance. And, you know, you have to have the right audience for that kind of thing. And I worried if I had given enough context and if people understand what I was trying to say. And um, it's something that I, I would repeat because... I've learned that you can repeat performances yeah. as many times as you'd like to. Yeah. So I have another opportunity. You know, I, I would hope that it reaches the audience that I would like it to. But um, my friend Lauren Gashinsky was a big part of that. And she was working at um, Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. So she was amazingly supportive. She made sure I had everything that I needed. Her collective girlfriends was hosting a third Thursday at the Carnegie Museum. And um, she asked if I would want to do a performance. So essentially, this was all her. Like, she set it up. It was her idea to do something in the Forum Gallery, which is where Dana Lawson's um, exhibition was. And I was like, wow, I can do that. So I was really unsure about what I was going to propose until I went to the opening and she was there for the talk. So hearing her frame her work and give her work context, I knew I wanted it to be something performative, but I wanted it to also be something that was like important to black culture. Mm. And I think that night I was like, I want to get my hair braided in the space. And I proposed it to her and she's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Like, make sure you send me images. So I was like, this is great. The museum can't say no because the artist said that, you know, she thinks it's great. So I felt like that gave me a little bit of leverage because I was nervous about, you know, what I could propose and what the museum would be open to. Yeah. Yeah. They were really supportive. They thought it was a great idea. They thought it was really interesting. And um, I framed the idea around you know, hair braiding being sort of a rite of passage for, you know, all young black girls. And my mom specifically learned how to braid so that she could do, you know, her kid's hair. Mm. The process, the connection, you know, that we share with other women, because even when I get my hair done, you know, I'm, I'm trusting my stylist. I'm trusting what is, you know, essentially a black woman's crowning glory. And mm. I think that there's a connection that maybe we don't realize, but it's deeply rooted for me. And I think that's why, you know, any process in a salon or anything that we're going through were around other black women and, you know, that black feminine energy, it's important. And I wanted to bring that into that space. And I also wanted to, you know, claim that space. And in contrast to the performance I had done previously, I wanted non-people of color to sort of feel uncomfortable in that space. And Mm. I think we did exactly that. And it was primarily a white audience and they were really reluctant to come in the forum gallery. And when they did, it was very tentative. They would ask my stylist permission to like watch. It felt really good. Um, She's from the Island. So she was playing like a lot of Jamaican music, which was dope. So, I mean, that was cool. I think the vibe and the ambiance that we created, it was really for us and it was exactly what I was trying to do. And I think my only regret was that it had been more well attended. But mm. my friends were amazing and they documented it really, really well. So I have that, this thing that I did. And I'm very happy with it. And I don't think I would change anything about it. You can always redo it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can choose a different context. Yeah. I mean, I I think that 
piece for me is really powerful because it's such a simple gesture. Yeah. You know, and just from that simple act, people know or subconsciously know if they don't know the full history about it, that it's directly tied to a very specific uh, racial identity. Yeah. You know, so kind of like what you said, even the the white viewers going there, they even felt like they were intruding on something. Yeah. You know, you know, and then when you think of like Solange's Don't Touch My Hair and like yeah. this idea of a black person's hair being this sort of special kind of cultural heritage, cultural. Yeah, yeah that's a good way to frame it. Sort, um, sort of cultural heritage that is very unique and um, special. Yeah. I think so many times as a woman of color, you know, because, again, I don't have this formal arts education, I've been in these institutions and, you know, wondered how much I belonged there. Yeah. And this performance is really an opportunity to, you know, really claim that space, which Diana emphasizes a lot through her work. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever felt as though I belonged at an institution mm-hmm. as much as I did that night. Yeah. And um, it's because it's your body, right? I think yeah. you, you briefly touched upon this, but I I think a lot about performance and for me, at least the power of performance is it is different from painting in the sense that when you paint, whatever thing that you make is one step removed from the viewer, mm-hmm. right? It's, you can, in a sense, ignore the artist who made that piece. Yeah. But then when you do a performance, there's a certain agency, there's a certain immediacy mm-hmm. to the body being physically there. Yeah. And you can't ignore it. You're also putting meaning onto your body which is a which is a living organic time-based moving organism that has power yeah right and that i can't i mean you can argue but i would say that that power is definitely lessened in a painting or sculpture yeah you know in terms of at least that sort of agency that um, the body brings Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you do sort of a hair weaving that's very different than a photograph of the hair yeah. weaving or like a painting of a hair weaving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It felt really poignant. And I think um, people really understood what I was trying to do and say. And I hope on a larger scale, people understand that, you know, as I mentioned before, I do feel privileged to be invited into these institutions. But if I wasn't the type of person that I am and if there weren't, you know, so many other people of color emphasizing the importance of our contributions to these institutions, then that would not be the case. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. I, and then also I think the most fascinating thing is you did it before, I believe you did it before the, that Carter's album was released, right? Yeah. You know, and that, I think when I was, I was today I was looking back, I was like, when did you do that piece? And you know, that my, my memory doesn't really work that well as and so I was just like, is it before or after? And then I was like, Oh, I think at least when I saw it, it was like April twentieth, which yeah. is way before the album. Yeah, it was back in April. So that was exciting. I'm a I'm a huge Jay Z fan, more so than I am a Beyonce really? fan. Really? Yeah, I grew up listening to Jay. I had every single one of his CDs. I like collected Jay Z stuff. What do you think of the new album? I'm so I'm a fan of like Big Pimpin' Jay, like Iceberg Slim Jay, uh-huh. who is never going to settle down. And then he did. And it was kind of like, wow, this is your life now. Yeah. But I think as we grow, our favorite artists have to grow. And, yeah. you know, they have this really interesting dynamic where, you know, they are a couple. And in some sense, it's real because, you know, they're married and they have children together. But then 
so much of it is like, you know, entertaining. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder like how much of it is truly authentic or, you know, if they're really just telling a story for their audience. But I don't love them together as much as I love them both separately. Visually. Yeah. So I wasn't interested in um, seeing them tour. I've heard that the tour is amazing, but I get enough insight from social media I I liked this album a lot it wasn't what I expected from a joint album when I heard they were in the studio together I was really apprehensive because so many songs that you know couples do they can wind up being like really corny yeah and I didn't want that from like my favorite artist of all time Yeah, yeah but I think the production was really really beautiful I think it worked cohesively and they were still very much themselves on each track. Mm-hmm. Like Jay had some of his best lines on that album. I like that it was so short. I think they knew like, we don't want to push this too far. We're going to keep it like short and sweet. Mm-hmm. So that was really dope. The imagery was incredible. I love them being in like these incredible, like worldwide known institutions and just like taking up space. Yeah. So that was really cool. And um, I don't know, I'm really flattered that my work was compared to the album artwork. I do think Beyonce creeps like regular people on Instagram. Even though she doesn't follow anyone. Yeah, I, she <laughs> yeah. definitely creeps. She, because, probably, she probably has yeah, another creeps. Instagram account that like... Yeah, she has a Finsta. But I think for her artistry, it's important that she does, right? Because I I get so much inspiration off of people that I connect with on social media. And I think, you know, for a big artist, it's the same. And I think she has great ideas. And I think, you know, her team has great ideas. But you have to source the ideas from somewhere. And, you know, these are real world ideas. And these are real world experiences. And, you know, people not being invited into these spaces. So, like being at a museum with a do-rag like that's really dope and it's really poignant imagery and then you know the act in itself it's like really poignant right. you know and you, and you know i mean you know she's following it and she you know she has a group of friends or a team that also is informed about that yeah. right because you know like i think the art world specifically blew up when lemonade came out and they're like oh they yeah. look they she copied not that she copied the right word, but she used reference Pipilote wrist with the yeah. smashing of the car, mm-hmm. you know, for her uh, for her photograph of the baby picture, the yeah. baby shower that was with AWOL, who's like mm-hmm. an artist photographer from Yale. Like yeah, that, and that's, he's incredible. But like that's very specific, right? Yeah. Like unless you are specifically following those kinds of artists, like I only know, I only knew AWOL because I knew Devin, okay, right? Because yeah. they went to school together mm-hmm. and, but like, Again, like just the world of art is just so vast and for um, someone as busy as Beyonce to keep referencing these like art artists. um, She definitely knows what she's doing. Yeah. Um, And I think her sister influences her artistry a lot. Yeah. Because Solange, like I've seen her career trajectory and how she's matured and how she's sort of like come into herself and really embraced being like an unapologetically black artist and I love what she's doing. I love her content. We saw her at Panorama and I think prior to that, I wasn't a big fan of like her newer work, but it made me a fan because her visuals and the simplicity of it all was so striking and so incredible. Yeah. So I loved it. She's a great live stage performer. Yeah. I haven't seen, I don't do many live shows. I should do more. I don't do too many either. Panorama was difficult because I have, really intense anxiety. So 
there were times where we had to like leave the crowd because I was so anxious that I was like nauseous. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that was rough, but Sean was very patient, even though it meant like sitting on the lawn and not having as good a view, but it was okay. And I think the people in the crowd were like really understanding. They know how to like back up and give people space for the most part. But I think maybe it was just like the ambiance of Solange and those vibes. And if we had been like... That probably helps. Yeah. If yeah. You, <laughs> we had been over like where Tyler, the creator set was. Yeah. I probably, was starting a rave. Yeah. Jumped, crowd they wouldn't surfing. have cared. They'd have just like pushed me out of the way. Yeah. So yeah. I got lucky. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I'm going to backtrack one last question that I once asked. Um, I was just curious. We had, we had briefly met before in the Carnegie to discuss the Dina Lawson show mm-hmm. and I guess the controversy surrounding it. Yeah. Um, you held a, a forum with Dan Lear to discuss the situation. I was curious what you thought about that whole uh, situation with Dina Lawson and the Carnegie Museum of Art. I think that, again, not having a formal arts background, it puts me in a really unique position to see things on both sides so I can understand especially you know artists of color in Pittsburgh feeling as though this work does not represent them in a positive light and I can understand them feeling like you know it's great we have black people in the museum but you know why are they naked or why why are they not photographed in the most flattering way and um, I get that I understand it 100% I think it's dangerous to in turn have these feelings and try to tear down the black artist that's producing them. I think it's more important to be open to these conversations because she was here and then she came back. So everyone who was so outspoken, they had ample opportunity to sit with her. And, you know, that was more than any of us deserved was for her to come back and, you know, further explain her work. I don't think any artist should have to do that. I think it's labor. Exactly. And I, I think that, you know, we can have these thoughts and ideas because we aren't viewing this work through, you know, a fine art lens. But it's important to also have these conversations. And, you know, you can't just hop online and like I'm emailing these people. I'm telling them like, hey, I made a Facebook post and I just wanted to let you know, like, these are my thoughts. Like you have to position yourself to do that. Otherwise, you're just going to be online and angry. And I think the Carnegie and Dan in particular, he's very aware of the critiques that they receive. And I think he's doing his absolute best to try to curb all that and make himself, you know, someone who's open to further contextualizing what he's doing and, you know, being open to having these conversations because I've been critical of Dan and, you know, he takes it in stride and he's like, you know what? I hear you and I want to get better. And I think that's all we can do. Yeah. And I think it's important to hold people accountable but we also can't condemn them because like everyone has to learn. Like I'm in the position that I'm in because, you know, I've learned, like I'm aware of the things I'm aware of because of the people that I had surrounding me, the people I was able to learn from. And a lot of that came from them being critical of me. And, you know, you can take those critiques and you can be mad and you can be bitter and you can like ignore them or you can take those critiques and take them seriously and, you know, unpack and realize what you're doing wrong, what you could be doing better. And I think as an institution, that is what they're working on. And I think we have a responsibility to involve ourselves more broadly in these institutions. And I know that they don't feel like they exist for us. We don't always feel welcome. And it is a privilege to, you know, be able to go to museum openings and be a part of these things. But I think that we should try. Um, And I know at that talk, um, my friend Beck Azalea, who's incredible, and 
I really value everything that she says. I don't even think she realizes like how incredible the things that she says truly are. Yeah. But she emphasized how like being within these institutions is a privilege. So I think on their end, they have to make it a little easier for us to get in there. Yeah. You know, it's expensive. Not everybody lives near the museum. I know. So there's a, a lot of factors that go into that. I think overall, I feel like we all have to do better. Yeah. Um, and that's all you can do. Yeah. It's important to remember that, I think, right? Yeah. I think as soon as you think you have it figured out, that's when you get arrogance. And that's yeah. where assumptions start being made. And yeah. you stop improving about, I guess, improving yourself, improving how you see the world. Yeah. And I don't ever want to be that person, like, with an ego. And that's yeah. why I try to be understanding. And it was actually Becca Zalia who tagged me in the conversation about the work. And I was so mad. I was, like, ready to go off because I love Deanna and I followed her work. And I was so excited that she was here in Pittsburgh. And I'm like, you guys are ruining this for me. But then I said, you know, they don't know any better. And their only basis for comparison is Teeny Harris, you know, because yeah. he was the most prominent black photographer that, you know, Pittsburgh ever had. So, of yeah. course, everyone's going to reference his work because we're all familiar with his work. But we have to realize that, you know, he is not the precedent for black photography. You know, nobody is. It's um, it's very broad. And uh, I think we have to be open to exploring other facets of, you know, what black artists are trying to be expressive of because we're not monolithic. We're all not putting out the same kind of content. Right, right. And we have to be open to engage with all kinds of work. It can't just be teeny. But I'm really privileged to have that perspective. And I only have that perspective because um, when John Rubin's billboard went up in East Liberty, I saw a young woman post a status and she was like, you know, what is this? I don't understand this. What are they trying to say? Because we're here now. I don't want to exist in the future. And I was kind of like, well, this is why a black artist. And I was, I wasn't snobby, but I definitely gave off the impression of like, you don't know what you're talking about. You replied. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it wound up being a pretty expansive conversation where a lot of people were defending the work. But then, um, the woman who initially posted it, she was like, I understand what you're saying. I know it's a black artist and I don't care because the fact is my family's been displaced from East Liberty. I've seen my grandmother kicked out of Penn Plaza, um, you know, and she's like, this is happening and they're kicking us out of our own communities and they're coming in and taking over. And then they're putting this billboard up like that's supposed to make a difference. And a lot of some paraphrasing. Um, I have the screenshot of exactly what she said in my phone because it was so poignant and so well said. Yeah. This woman essentially like put everyone in this post in their place. Yeah. And you know, her thing was like, I don't care. This art isn't doing anything to benefit me or anybody else in my yeah. community. I don't know what it means because black people are here now. I don't want to talk about existing in the future. Like yeah. we need help now. We need places to live now. And I'd realized at that point that I was not looking at this piece as a person who does not exist in the arts community. I'm not looking at this piece as somebody who just lives in East Liberty and, right, right. you know, people are getting displaced left and right. And it made me realize that um, there is a disconnect between the people that are putting this work out and the viewers of this work. And right. you can't expect everybody to understand and you can't be angry when they don't. Right. And I felt like during that whole debacle, that's what I'll call it, um, <laughs> there wasn't enough emphasis on what the residents of that area actually had to say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this piece of art that they don't understand is just there all of a sudden yeah. with zero context given. And it's like, how are they supposed to receive that? And it made me really apprehensive about putting work up in East Liberty because I don't want to be that person that's just coming in and 
putting something into their community and have it not be well received. And it's like, I might as well not have done it in the first place. Right. Just, just, um, just for a quick context, the, the, like this debacle that Tara's talking about is there's a billboard projects in East Liberty, which is currently undergoing a huge amount of gentrification and change. And there's a piece that was put on this billboard project. This artist, Alicia Wormsley, she put up this text that says there are black people in the future and, Previous artists, mostly white, who have put up texts did not have any sort of issue. Um, but for some reason, her text that just simply said something to me, which is benign, is there are black people, black people in the future caused enough complaints that the landlord of that building had the piece taken down. I think especially art that deals with social issues are sort of exist in this sort of gray area. Yeah. People want a sort of like black and white in this case, literally black and white solution, but you know, like the Dina Lawson, like the uh, Billboard Project, there's a lot of confusion on both sides. There's a lot of privilege on both sides, and having a clear solution is oftentimes more about like structural and institutional change yeah. than it is about the individual projects and then the individual issues, um, woes, hurt feelings that the average person experiences get projected onto the piece itself yeah um which which then gets difficult right and yeah kind of, i think that what you just brought up about the billboard project was really accurate right it's like the issues happening now right and who gets the privilege to you know have a piece up in the billboard who knows the person who can be invited to put up a text piece right yeah. who gets the platform to have a lecture at the Kelly Strayhorn Theater, yeah. right? And who knows who knows the people there? And it all gets really complicated very quickly. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that could be said about it. It's probably worthy of a whole other conversation. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think art should be for everybody, but oftentimes it's not. So we have to understand why that's the case. And uh, yeah, there is a lot of privilege and... I think I'm only in my position because of my proximity to certain people, which I'm very fortunate to have. But other people don't have that proximity, which is really unfair. And, you know, there's that guilt again where I'm grappling with that. And I'm like, you know, would I have this opportunity if I didn't know this person and that person? But I feel as though if I just continue to be very intentional and very genuine, then I don't have to feel guilty. But sometimes I can't help it. And I think, you know, we all do our own part. We do what we can. It's, you know, me doing this podcast is sort of an attempt to create a discussion that I know my videos oftentimes do not, right? My videos are so oftentimes abstract, can be obtuse, (laughs) time-consuming in a way that the, the discussions I have with, you know, artists, curators, people like you, like that never gets translated into the work. At least directly, maybe, yeah. maybe indirectly, maybe if you talk to me. But for me, it was important to have these sort of discussions and sort of be able to put into words just thoughts. But also just thinking, I was thinking about there's this podcast I listen to, you know, conversations with people who hate me. Do you, oh, do you have you heard of that podcast? No, that sounds like a really good one. Yeah, it's by this uh, man, Dylan Marin, I think. I think he's Argentinian and he talks a lot about he got famous for making viral videos dealing with his queerness and he because of that and they're viral he gets a lot of hate mail and then he turned it into a podcast where he 
then reaches out to the people who sent him this hate mail. Oh, wow. And just he and Dylan, it can be sometimes annoying because Dylan won't. He, his goal isn't to start a fight. So yeah. sometimes at some point he'll let things slide. Um, mm. But like it's about like confronting and just saying, like, why did you say that? And having someone verbalize that and hopefully realize that what they said was very hurtful and mean yeah. oftentimes had a lot of projecting and assumptions being made about the people that they were sending it to. And he sometimes switches it where people will phone, will uh, email him like something they'll send to them. Mm-hmm. But he, the biggest question he asks is like, well, if you're interested in social activism, why don't you just be an activist? Right. And like, yeah. and then I think his response is like, he does what he thinks he knows how to do best. Right. And in the sense that he is someone who exists in the internet as a, viral video maker and using that clout to then create a podcast is something that he feels is the best use of his energy versus like actually being an activist and it's questionable but I think um, at least thinking about and trying to do your part to the best of your means and knowledge and uh, time wise too right like everyone not everyone a lot of times these um, you know the work that you put in social activism is just very time consuming and yeah so, yeah, we all try to do our part, and you need a spectrum of different things. That's a really good perspective. I'll have to listen to that podcast. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. I feel like if he's letting things slide, though, it's going to drive me crazy, like, to have to listen to that. Yeah. I mean, he, he does a good like job. sounds like an incredibly patient person. Yeah, I mean, because he doesn't, I mean, his goal isn't to start, like, a shouting match, yeah. right? Because it's already charged. You know that the person that is being talked to has online set, like, really charged things. So, yeah. like you know that an argument can immediately start. So I think Dylan does his best to try to at least um, talk until he feels like there's an impasse and then it's like, well, you know, we're free to disagree or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about that I missed? Any last thoughts? Um, Anything you want to get off your shoulder that you're just dying to? (laughs) No, I'm in a really good space artistically. I think my biggest issue right now is just being frustrated with a lack of space for performance. Like Mm. I have so many ideas that I want to do, but we don't have a big performance arts community here. Yeah. So there's not like a lot of opportunity to showcase. Right. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you started something at Carnegie. It'd be great if you could continue talking with them and creating a... um, sort of programming involved with that yeah. that or the Warhol. I think the Carnegie, the Warhol seems more far out in terms of like e- easy access, it seems, yeah. than the Carnegie. But like, you know. Um, I feel like I least, would love that at the Warhol though because in terms of conceptual performance, that's such right, a Warhol thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would love to see it continue. I know, um, you know, the MoMA and a lot of institutions like that they have a really thriving performance arts community and it's something that they really embrace and invite into their institutions right and i think you know the carnegie is in a position now where we're sort of seeing a turning point with their programming and you know with their output so that would be great if they wanted to do something similar to one of those well reach out send one of your emails that you've been sending It would be pretty simple. I just, I have friends that work there and I don't like to bug them about art stuff. Yeah. Right. I know what you mean. Yeah. My friend there, she's like an associate curator or rather an assistant curator. And she's always like, sometimes I just want to like have coffee and not talk about art. And 
I feel like it's probably like that for a lot of them because so much of that is their life and yeah. occasionally you probably need a break for it or from it. So yeah, I guess that's my only gripe right now is right. having things I want to produce and just not having the space or the opportunity. And I don't want to travel for these things because I think they're important for Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Tara. Is there any place that people could find you? Um, I mean, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook, but I think it's time that I put together a website. Yeah. That's just, it's a process in itself, but I think I have enough documentation to make it happen. So yeah. I guess that'll be like upcoming. Okay. What's your uh, handle at uh, Instagram? So I'm Ms. Tara Faye on Instagram and uh, just Tara Faye Coleman on ins- or on Facebook. I'm the only Tara Faye Coleman. Really? Yeah, I think so. I'm quite positive. Okay. So I don't know if that's changed recently. We'll yeah. see. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Tara. Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.